1: All right. We're going to talk about numbers today. Don't be afraid. I'm not afraid. Actually, I'm a little bit afraid. I'm appropriately afraid. And also, not to begin making excuses, (laughs) but I did the early morning pledge thing this morning, which I probably shouldn't have done on a day that would uh, test my cognition in the way that today's show will. So one of the questions, one way that we might begin to define one of the big questions we'll be exploring today might go something like this. So two days ago, um, an unattended cantaloupe in my yard rolled away while I was in the house, and it rolled a great distance, and it took a long time to find the cantaloupe, which had actually come to rest, as I say, quite a distance away from its point of origination uh, in, in some deep brush. Now, Let's set aside my personal theory, which is that cantaloupes are a lot more ambulatory than they let on, that occasionally when no one's watching, they actually are able to, you know, locomote. Uh, let's assume that's not true. Then there exists a whole bunch of numbers, a whole bunch of numerical relationships um, that would explain everything that the cantaloupe did, right? We, if we had all the numbers, uh, we could come up with some kind of model uh, explaining why the cantaloupe r- rolled as far as it did and it took the direction that it did. Uh, it's all there in the world of, uh, uh, of ellipses and parabolas and, uh, and gravity. And so there's, there's a mathematical world that exists to explain the cantaloupe. Now, the question is, is it there to explain the cantaloupe or is it just there? Has it always been there? Uh, And would it be there even if the cantaloupe didn't do anything, even if we didn't need it for specific things like that? To what degree uh, are numbers even more real or at least as real as the cantaloupe? Um, That's one of the things that we'll be asking today. But I I think we're also going to ask some more basic questions about our relationship to numbers. So Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it it had the central joke in it, which was that the answer to the ultimate question of life the universe, and everything is 42, which he didn't ever really explain. I think he just thought it was a funny number. David Cross and Bob Odenkirk in their sketch comedy, Mr. Show, uh, had a sketch about this uh, enclave of mafiosi, Uh, gangsters who are completely wedded to the idea that 24 is the highest number uh, and would become violent if people suggested otherwise. So there's something funny apparently about numbers and maybe especially numbers with two and four in them. Uh, But numbers overall, they – I don't know. When you start thinking about them, they can almost seem a little arbitrary. 42. Who says 42? Um, And that in turn gets at a conversation we've all had with our high school math teachers why do I need this? I'm not going to study black holes or design bridges. Is there any reason if my goal is to be a happy person capable of experiencing truth and beauty, why I would need to know a lot about numbers or specifically, you know, the calculus or quadratic equations or whatever that you're trying to teach me right now. So all of those questions are kind of on the table and some other big questions as well. Um, We're going to be talking uh, to two uh, people in the world of academia who think very hard about these questions, we are going to begin with Caleb Everett, uh, he's got, who will be with us for the whole time, professor and chair of anthropology at the University of Miami and the author of Numbers and the Making of Us, Counting and the Course of Human Cultures. So you might well ask, why are you talking to an anthropologist if your show is about numbers? Well, first of all, um, welcome, Caleb Everett. Thanks for having me. So one of the reasons we're talking to you is that you are uniquely poised as an anthropologist to answer the question, do people always have numbers? Do people always know numbers? Uh, Has every race of people uh, that inhabited the earth been hardwired to
0: experience the world through numbers? And the answer appears to be no, right? Yeah. To a large extent, the answer is no. And we know this because even today there are people out there, uh, a couple of different populations that don't have numbers, right? So they don't even have one or two or three as concepts that they use in their day-to-day lives. They're not existent in their languages. Uh, they They lack, for instance, the singular versus plural distinction. And we think that for the bulk of human history, this is probably how it was, right? We just lacked numbers, and this is something that we've developed in certain cultural traditions, and it spread sort of like a cognitive fire, but not all people ha- have them, and certainly not all people had them over the course of our history.
1: Um, so let's talk a little bit more about those tribes because I think people might be going, what? What do you mean they don't have any numbers? So um, and maybe we can talk uh, about – I don't know if I'm saying their names right, but the Piraha, uh, an Amazonian tribe. Uh, they're one of these groups that – I mean
0: when you say that they don't have numbers, maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Right. So the Pitaha are a really interesting case because they have a couple of number-like words, but these words are best translated as something like a couple or a few. They have those imprecise connotations, right? And they speak maybe the most anumeric language that's been documented, but... Bear in mind that there are about 7,000 languages that exist in the world today, and not all of them have been very carefully documented. So we know of some other cases also where in the Amazon, such as the Munduruku, that only seem to have precise numbers for one and two, and everything after that is, is fuzzy. And there are some other systems that are one, and then everything after that is fuzzy. So when you come across populations like this, and my own sort of personal history is relevant because I got interested in this topic because I spent time as a child with this group Um, of Pitahan people because my parents were missionaries there, Um, you see that their absence, the lack of numbers in their culture, has a variety of different effects on their day-to-day lives. And subsequent research by myself and a number of other cognitive scientists shows that uh, the absence of numbers impacts their basic quantitative cognition. And this isn't really a point about them. It's a point about all of us, that without numbers, we have... Uh, very uh, strong limitations on our quantitative thought. Um, When
1: we say that, I mean, let's uh, get uh, as specific as we can. So uh, there are experiments, for example, where the Pitaha are shown, I think, seven spools of thread uh, and asked to basically replicate that number of spools of thread. Do I have that right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Like So that's the most basic uh, quantity recognition task. It's called one-to-one correspondence task, where people are essentially just viewing a quantity of objects, say spools of thread, and then they have to match that quantity with a new array that they make out of, say, uh, empty rubber balloons was one of the things that we did in our experimental tasks. And then we see sort of at what point their performance starts to degrade, right? Um, and it turns out that Right around the transition from three to four things, um, they struggle uh, precisely recognizing. So um, they don't recognize the difference between, say, six versus seven things consistently. They do it the majority of the times, but not consistently. And as the number gets higher, their performance gets worse and worse. And this isn't maybe that surprising when you think about it, because in the absence of a cognitive tool to count out those spools of thread or whatever it is, um, how are you going to remember exactly how many are in front of you?
1: Right. Well, I mean – well, actually, we could come back to that. Maybe we will. But um, so I know one person um, commenting on this whole question uh, at Slate.com raised an interesting question, which was, "Okay, so spools of thread. I mean we could maybe make the argument that the people from the Piraha hadn't really been thinking too much about spools of thread that day and it didn't have a whole lot of – you know, very poignant meaning to them, so who cares how many there are? But what about a woman with five, six, or seven children? Um, certainly, she's aware of their individual existences, that they differ from one another. They're not the same uh, children. Um, how about something as visceral as that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, so the first point to say is that spools of thread is one example, but we've replicated this with a lot of different kinds of stimuli and different objects. But yeah, so I, and I've been—I've uh, faced this question many times, uh, you know, with audiences and so forth. Uh, how how is it that possible that a woman doesn't know that she has five kids or six kids? And I would actually say that says more about uh, that question says more about us doing the asking and how numbers are so ingrained in our minds in a numeric society. Because if you think, for instance, about a family reunion or something like that, right? You go to Thanksgiving uh, dinner or something like that, and let's say you have five or six siblings, you're s- yourself, right? And let's say one of your siblings is named uh, John or something like that, and you, and you look around the table and you see John's missing. I doubt that you're, you're going to use any math for that, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to look around the table and say, well, you know, I know I have uh, five siblings and, and I only see four or something like that. You're going to look around and say, where's John, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a mother in an anumeric population, she's conceiving of these kids as individuals, right? She doesn't have to track them numerically to be aware of the fact that one of them is missing
1: um as i understand it this whole idea that maybe um a group of people a tribe of people might have a numeric or an a quality to them that maybe tops out at 3 is uh, or even 2 is is pretty close to what we see in the hardwiring of of inf- infants right all infants uh, seem pretty early on, as I understand it, to be able to maybe differentiate between one and two, uh, may, maybe
0: three. Yeah, you're exactly right. So we see this really early on in life, and some research, some very recent research, suggests that some of the quantitative capacities of infants are there at 24 hours, at least. Right. So we maybe they're there even in the womb, most likely. So, um, and some of this is so they can tell the difference between say two objects and three objects and two objects and one object. But they can also tell the difference between larger quantities if the disparity between them is large enough. So even at birth, we can tell um, eight objects or eight beeps from 16 beeps, right? either in the auditory or visual modalities. We can sort of see, oh, this is a lot more than that. right? But the quantity difference between the two sets has to be pretty pronounced. Where we need numbers is to make these fine-grained distinctions beyond three, so four versus five, five versus six, where the disparity isn't so obvious um, if you can't count.
1: Um, There's one other group of people that I want to talk about uh, in in this connection, and it's especially poignant because today, uh, every couple of weeks, we do a show uh, in what we call Radio for the Deaf, where uh, American Sign Language interpreters are here in the studio with me. Uh, Everything that uh, the guests say and everything that I say uh, is then rendered or interpreted uh, in ASL on a Facebook live feed. So if you go to the Colin McEnroe Show page uh, at Facebook, you can see a video feed that's happening right now live and will be available afterwards. We we do this because there's a deaf audience that obviously uh, has very little or, you know, in many cases, no contact with the medium of radio. So we've tried to invent a form of radio that um, that a deaf audience uh, can experience and Really enjoy too, so um, so we have two uh, terrific interpreters in, in here who are doing this. I'm not going to be talking about them all the time, uh, but it's uh, Mary Sue Owens who does uh, every. Who, she interprets everything that I say. Uh, Kaylee McKenna, the other um, interpreter, will be interpreting everything that everybody else uh, says. So right now she's doing Caleb. Uh, so. Um, so the reason that I think it's poignant to mention that is that there's a group of people who, believe it or not, we have already talked about in some depth on another episode of our show, uh, and they are a, a group of deaf People in Nicaragua who have never been taught uh, a sign language, Um, and so their experience, Caleb, is going to be a little bit different. I mean, uh, when we're talking about these other two Amazonian tribes, it's not like they're surrounded by other people who know the difference between seven and eight. Uh, They're they're not. They they live in a tribe where people just don't really deal with that very much or at all. Um, But but here we have something a little bit different. We have people with essentially an an innovated language, a, a language a sign language or a sign communication that they, of necessity, have invented for themselves, but they're surrounded by numerate people. So what happens to them? How, how do they experience numbers?
0: Yeah. So in a, in a way, they're a more interesting test case because, as you say, they they are surrounded by numbers, right? So the, the research with these people shows that they can distinguish, say, um, different currencies, right? And they're aware of the fact that there are certain quantities of of money that are better than other quantities of money and so forth but they so, so some of the research has looked at Nicaraguan signers so people who speak Nicaraguan sign language and have numbers and are, are you know even trained in math and their performance on a variety of mathematical tasks and quantity discrimination tasks is unsurprisingly the same as someone who hears or speaks Spanish um, and is familiar with Spanish numbers But when you look at the Nicaraguan home signers, so they develop this, they they speak this developed communication system in their home that lacks numbers, but yet at the same time, they're very familiar with the concept of numbers, or at least the fact that they exist around them. Their performance is, on a variety of tasks, is actually much more similar to the Pirahã and the Munduruku in the Amazon, um, who are not surrounded by numbers, but share this one trait in common, which is that they lack number, uh, numeric language. And this is just yet another telling example of how critical numerical language is for us to understand basic quantity, uh, discrimination. And if you look at the performance of these Nicaraguan home signers on a variety of tasks, you see, they're, they're actually a bit better than the Pitaha on some of these tasks, but you see a similar, uh, thing where as the perform, as the quantity task involves four and five and six, as the quantity gets higher, their performance degrades uh, pretty significantly, like that of the Pitaha. Huh? So, uh, this leads us to another
1: question. OK, so everything that we're saying right now suggests that uh, if we go through the entire breadth of human history, well, we probably encounter a lot, maybe the bulk of, uh, of human societies uh, that were for a while enumerate. I mean an awful lot of people were probably in the same position before a lot of recorded history. So then, then the question becomes, OK, so do we – invent numbers do I, or learn numbers or or get a number system because there's something very specific that we need to do or for example, in other words, I mean, if you if you were hunter-gatherers, maybe you'd want to know if you gathered as many things today as you did yesterday or whether things are going pretty well in the gathering department. Maybe you need to gather a little bit more tomorrow. Well, you got to be able to count and have numbers probably uh, unless you're going to ballpark or, or spitball this question. Or if you want to develop it even more, if you want to be in a position to, let's say, sell your excess of whatever it is you do to somebody else, trade with somebody else, whatever, you're going to need numbers. So are there anthropological theories? theories? Theories about why numbers started to be necessary. Did they make these things possible, or did they become necessary because people wanted to do these things?
0: Well, it's a great question. I think the answer is both, though maybe Mm. not the most satisfying answer, (laughs) right? But (laughs) so you need you need numbers to. We know this from the experimental evidence that you need numbers to be able to do some tasks associated with certain kinds of societies, right? So you need numbers to be able to precisely discriminate quantities in the way needed for systematic agriculture, for instance. And obviously, the invention of agriculture was critical for the the course of human history. So you need it in that direction, Mm -hmm. right? But as you have things like agriculture and as you have things like um, larger urban societies, then obviously there are these new pressures on number systems to be refined and developed in certain ways so that we can tackle new sets of problems. And so the pressure kind of feeds on itself in both directions, and eventually what you get is what we see around us today, where societies where a lot of the things around us are contingent on the existence and usage of numbers, but in turn a lot of the things around us put pressure on us to use numbers in uh, day to day lives and even hour and hour and minute to minute lives, right? So if you even think about things like hours and minutes and seconds, these are the product of specific numerical traditions. Um, the Mesopotamian traditions and the Egyptian traditions and so forth that gave us these ideas of hours and minutes and seconds ultimately. Uh, so those are numeric things, but then they put pressure on us to think about times and time in new ways and to further develop uh, numerical concepts associated with time, which then feed into uh, the technologies that are enabled by those numerical uh, technologies. And so it all feeds on itself, I would say.
1: I guess I'm sort of even wondering about cognitive development. All right. So if a a, a piraha and I are standing side by side and and a whole bunch of – I'm trying to think of something that we might seek. Capybara? Did they see Capybara? Yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. Okay, so a bunch of Capybara run by, like a big herd of them. Well, we both saw the same thing, a whole bunch of Capybara, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to say that there were 20 of them or 19 of them or 18. They just were moving very fast. We had essentially the same experience. But at some level, I, because I'm numerate or somewhat numerate anyway, uh, there, there ultimately are things that I can want to know and, and can want to learn. D- does that – I don't know. I mean all of these things I assume affect – the way we perceive everything, I would assume somebody who is is anumerate or differently numerate, had it like a really different way of using numbers, would actually perceive the world differently.
0: Yeah, to some extent, you could make that case. Although I think in the example of the capivara running by, we probably perceive it very similarly, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. if you don't have the time to count it, I mean, it's a it's a perfect example. I think of it's a it's one way to get in that sort of mindset is when you don't have time to count. Um, and experiments with English speakers show this too, their performance is remarkably similar to the Pitaha, right? We mm-hmm. just we have this fuzzy recognition of, wow, that was a lot of Capivata that just ran by. Mm. But we're not thinking of it of, oh, that was 12, unless we had the time to count it out. So I would argue that the worldview sort of question isn't really that different in, in a large percentage of the day-to-day uh, things uh, actions and context that we come across, right? But there there are times, obviously, when we focus on it where, like you said, we can ask certain questions because we have numbers, and those questions lead us down certain cognitive and behavioral paths uh, that are critically different from those that exist in societies without numbers.
1: All right. I think we're going to take a break here. Um, and uh, I do want to, once again, remind you, if you go over to the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook, Um, you can see this all rendered, interpreted um, by wonderful interpreters in American Sign Language. Uh, And if you know anybody who's deaf and who uh, therefore doesn't really have a lot of experiences with radio, uh, today would be, well, an interesting day, particularly if that person is interested in numbers. All right. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back. And we are back. We are talking about the nature of numbers and how human beings came to use them and whether numbers, uh, well, we'll get eventually to the Question of whether numbers know we're using them. Maybe numbers uh, exist and really don't care about us that much. Um, but we have a lot of other things to explore before we get there. Uh, we've been talking to and will continue to be talking to Caleb Everett, professor and chair of anthropology at the University of Miami and the author of Numbers and the Making of Us Counting and the Course of Human Cultures. Now joining us is Brian Clegg, the author of Are Numbers Real? The Uncanny Relationship of Mathemat- Mathematics and the Physical World. Uh, Brian Clegg, welcome to our conversation.
2: Captain Incarn.
1: So one of the things that you do in this book – so we were just talking about um, uh, cultures where they are enumerate. They don't really have a number system. But one of the things that you do right at the beginning of this book is kind of posit a, a situation where ultimately you and I – might want to have some numbers so that we could talk about things. Um, So let's uh, go uh, – we'll continue with the capybara, uh, these large uh, South American rodents. And let's imagine that I've got a pen full of 10 of them and you – uh, there are goats in your book, but we're, they're going to be capybara here. You, for whatever nefarious reason, want to borrow five of them. Uh, and somehow or other, we need to keep track of all this. So, so, Brian, how do we go about keeping track of how many of my capybara uh, you've got and whether I'm going to get them back uh, in the same okay. quantity?
2: Well, well, I guess we've gone a little bit too far in saying I want to borrow five of them. I want to borrow some of them. Okay. And <laughs> you need to know how many I've borrowed because you want to get them back. Um, Now, at that stage, we don't really need to count because what we can do is have a tally. So we can just make a mark, say, for each of the capybara um, I take away, and you can pair up those marks with the the capybara. And you don't have to actually know how many capybara there are. You just have to, as I bring them back, pair them off again. Uh, So it's like you've got a one-to-one correspondence between the capybara and the marks. And that kind of tally system um, we think goes back a long way. I mean, there, there's some examples that may be a tally from maybe 20,000 years ago. Um, and what I do in the book is show, I'm not suggesting it's saying how it actually happened, but how you could go quite easily from a tally to producing something that is a bit like a set of numbers because it becomes easier to actually use a symbol for a certain set of capybara, perhaps a handful with one for each finger and thumb on your hand, than than just having a set of notches or or dashes or lines.
1: So this gets at a, a tension that. And by the way, as we go through here, I mean, I am woefully ignorant about a lot of the things I'm going to be bringing up. So neither guest should hesitate to say, well, that's wrong. or, or. Um, but I, I perceive kind of a tension, uh, particularly in your book, between two aspects of numbers. So there's a real world application of numbers. It's useful for us to have numbers so we can count the number of capybaras so I can know how many I lent to you and whether you gave me back the same uh, number. We can uh, think of zillions of other examples of ways in which numbers map onto the real world. Uh, the tension I, would per, I perceive is that numbers are also essentially a series of abstractions with fixed or defined relations among them. We can, can never with our senses – experience the number itself, right? I can give you six goats. I can feed you three eggs. uh, We can hear five bird calls, but we can't hear five, and I can't feed you three, uh, and and I can't give you six, right? These are—numbers are not ultimately things that we experience with our senses, although in that physical sense that we just talked about, they are. uh, Brian, maybe you can react to what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is perfectly reasonable. As, as you say, you cannot have a, give you a six. I can give you a representation of six, so I can give you a num, a written symbol that represents six, or I can give you six objects. Um, but I think the thing that has happened with number is it started off with a very close representation, a very close relationship to individual objects. So when you're talking about integers, numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on, you can easily relate that to individual objects, real things. And over time, what's happened is, because numbers are interesting, it enables us to do interesting things with our minds, we can head off in different directions that go further and further away from reality, some of which are still incredibly useful. You know, my background is physics, and we use numbers an awful lot in physics. But at some point, um, mathematicians are effectively off in their own little numerical world And it it can be great fun, but it may not ever relate directly to reality.
1: Right. So uh, pretty early on, I mean, maybe not that early in terms of uh, what Caleb would consider to be the arc of human history, but pretty early on, you've got Aristotle really troubling himself with the whole question of infinity. You know, infinity may not have any particular use for him uh, living in Greek society, but he wants to know what it means. And, and yes, there are all these other things, the square root of two or negative numbers. Right away, these things set themselves up uh, pretty quickly. And You know, I guess maybe – let me just turn to Caleb for a second here, Brian, and and ask uh, Caleb, you know, if in fact we can sort of think anthropologically about how people might want to be able to count and add and subtract and multiply and divide, is it possible to think anthropologically about how we – about why or how people would then turn to these less physically useful activities like square roots and
0: negative numbers? Well, it's an interesting question, but um, I guess from my perspective, the key point would be that this is something that has only existed very recently, right? Mm -hmm. So you're right that from my perspective, Aristotle, when we're talking about that, we're talking about something that's extremely recent. And we see that develop in a few sort of strands of human history, but the, the vast majority of cultures didn't develop that uh, they just sort of borrowed it from other cultures. Even something that's abstract, but not as abstract as something like a square root. So something like zero, we only have attested in the written record um, in in the old world in around around the fifth century, right? So that's that's extremely re- recent from the perspective of human history, and there are sort of cultural specific questions as to why we get into these abstractions. And I think that gets back to the issue we were talking about earlier, where these things sort of feed off of each other. But I would stress that the sort of the fundamental thing that leads us down that path at all is the recognition of correspondence of fingers on our hands. So we can talk about things like tallies and those are really important and we see even contemporary tallies in Amazonia and Africa and other places. And some that do stretch back actually over 40,000 years. But long before that, we have uh, evidence that people were counting with their their fingers and that they were inventing number words based off of uh, words like hand. And the reason I say we have evidence for that is that about 80% of the world's 7,000 languages have decimal number systems, right? Some have base five or base 20, or there's a lot of other exotic systems. But base 10 and base five, uh, particularly base 10, are the most common decimal number systems. And so we seem, it's quite likely, given that preponderance that we see today, that we had those in our languages before we left Africa. We don't know that for sure. But it's quite plausible. In other words, that's the this gateway that led us to numbers, and it did so tens of thousands of years ago. Um, And ultimately, in certain cultural traditions, led to these more abstract questions, like um, and developments like imaginary numbers or the Fibonacci sequence or whatever.
1: All right, so so Brian, let's go back to those questions. I mean, I think. OK. I, I'm trying to think about how to get into this. So imagine uh, that um, that I could bring uh, maybe a, somebody from the Piraha tribe or somebody who didn't uh, have numbers and, and we could get that person up to speed on numbers and counting. And, and we could sort of essentially compress the, the, the evolution of human beings and their understanding of numbers into a pretty small space and, and get them through the basics and then um, tell them about what happened when the Greeks started to think about the square root of two, to which there is really not a really good obvious answer, at least in the form of an integer, uh, and then talk a little bit about what the Greeks thought and did about that. If I were the Piraha, I think I may be saying, so in other words, when you guys run into something that doesn't really work that well, you basically just change the rules. Isn't that what the Greeks were doing?
2: Um, I, I don't think I'd say they were really changing the rules in that they were kind of making up the rules as they went along. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Greek problem with the square root of two was primarily because the Pythagoreans um, had decided that everything was based on whole numbers. Um, So they had a picture of the universe, a model of the universe, where whole numbers were very, very important. Uh, And because of that, they assumed it should be possible to do pretty well everything from whole numbers or ratios of whole numbers. And the problem came that they discovered fairly early on that the square root of two isn 't a ratio of any whole numbers uh it 's what we 'd now call an irrational number um, and that certainly hit their if you like their their culture that their um, ideas of their particular group um, but those ideas were philosophy rather than science um though they, they were not based on anything in reality they were based on on, on a theory um which then was changed when they found out more. But it took a while because they find it pretty scary. In fact, allegedly, they took out a guy called Hipparsus, um, who told the world about this and drowned him for daring to tell the world uh, that square root of two wasn't uh, a ratio of two whole numbers.
1: We should say one of the things that Brian's book proves uh, is that math can be dangerous uh, in in that example. And uh, I think there's some guy a little bit later who wrecks his mind and his health or something thinking about infinity too much. Uh, So be careful. I mean math is not for the faint of heart. Um, So – you know pretty quickly though you start wanting to use or, or humankind uh, starts wanting to use these numbers to figure things out to figure things out for example about let's say the area of a circle and, and then pretty quickly you get into it, irrational numbers right um, so uh, i don't know i'm not even sure what question i'm framing here i guess the question that i'm framing is here's is, once again my my peerahafra friend watching peerahafra friend watching this whole thing says well wait a minute so When you want to just come up with a way of measuring a circle with this system, you have to use something that's not even really one of the numbers that you count with, right? You have to do something else. You have to come up with a different kind of number. What does that say about your system? What would you tell them?
2: Well, I think it's the same again. It's the nature of scientists or nature of the development of maths originally is that um, it's very much a matter of you have a theory, you test the theory, you modify it given what you find out. Now, the nice thing about mathematics as opposed to science is that you can build your own world as long as it's totally consistent. Um, So you could, in principle, have a world in which the ratio of the circumference of a circle to uh, the radius wasn't an irrational transcendent number like pi, but actually was, you know, three. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, Some people did actually try to insist that it is three. Um, But the fact is you very quickly find, if you do do that, that the consistencies break, that you can do that in one place, but when you try to use it in some other way, it goes horribly wrong. So the way that it's been developed is the more we learn about the relationship between numbers and the world, the more we discover certain rules we have to stick to. And so we, we gradually home in on the way things do seem to be.
1: So, um, with your interest in physics, okay, now I'm uh, really about to um, expose myself uh, as an ignoramus. But so, to those of us looking in from the outside at physics, it seemed as though, just to take an example, that the reason people went looking for the Higgs boson was that the Higgs boson had to exist because otherwise the math didn't work right? And that that in many respects, there's a sense in which as we really start to get deeper into physics, the the question that we know something exists if it makes mathematical sense. We think that we need to know something more if it doesn't work mathematically. To some people, that might look like kind of a circular process.
2: Um, I I don't think it's really circular, but what's happened is we've kind of turned things around. So if you go back to the 19th century, it was very much a case of you observe something happening in the world, um, you make a theory uh, to try to explain why that's happening, and then that will make predictions and you test those against reality. Modern physics is very much driven by the math. So uh, things like symmetry, um, the, the aspect, idea of symmetry, so like you know the reflections in a mirror and that kind of thing, are really important in modern physics. And a lot of the ideas of modern physics, such as the need for the to be at this Higgs boson, really comes out of the math. And in a sense, what we're doing then is pushing forward our research more from the math than from what we see around us. Uh, And you do really have to have a balance. Uh, I I think it's fair to say we've moved heavily towards being driven by math. Chances are we may take a little step back. We're never going to abandon it because it's absolutely essential for physics. But whether or not it can lead us down dead ends um, isn't totally clear,
1: right? We can't go fly out and measure a black hole, and through techniques of observation, experimentation, um, understand a black hole. We understand a black hole mathematically.
2: Well, in fact, the, you know, until relatively recently, it was quite possible that black holes just didn't exist; mm-hmm. uh, that were, they were just an interesting mathematical phenomenon. And vast amounts of work has been done purely on the math, and some of it does not reflect reality so the very first idea that was worked on with black holes was black holes that don't spin because the math is a lot simpler if they're not spinning as far as we're aware any black holes that exist will spin Um, so it was purely a mathematical exercise to start with Uh, but it's just gradually we began to realize there were these things out there that bore this resemblance to what we would expect uh, the effects of a black hole to be and now we're fairly certain, we're still not absolutely 100% certain, but we're fairly certain that that mathematical prediction is playing out uh, in those black holes. Uh, but it's certainly an interesting thing, thing, and the more we can develop new technologies, so for instance the new uh, gravital, gravitational wave astronomy that started in 2015 is the first time we've ever directly detected what appears to be a black hole. So that, that's moved us on a big, in, in a big way.
1: All right. So we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. Um, I have some questions uh, for Caleb Everett also uh, about the role that numeracy plays in the development of civilization. Is it as important as, I don't know, the wheel? Maybe it's more important. <laughs>
2: Today's show was produced
1: by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Galileo.
2: And now, back to Colin.
1: Yes, and this is a conversation that we are having uh, with uh, uh, with two authors who've written a book about num- books about numbers. Brian Clegg is the author of Are Numbers: Real, the Uncanny Relationship of Mathematics and the Physical World. Caleb Everett is professor and chair of anthropology at the University of Miami and the author of Numbers and the Making of Us: Counting and the Course of Human Cultures. So, um, Caleb, I want to go back to a question that I was asking you earlier, the one that you uh, said answered. I think both yes and no. Maybe we can talk about this a little bit. I think when we talk in a somewhat off-the-cuff and cavalier way about human progress or or, or evolution or the evolution of societies, you know, we tend to sort of lump a bunch of things together. And so we'll say something like, well, so this incredibly important transition is when we go from hunter-gatherers to uh, agricultural societies. Um, and, And... when we're talking about it in an off-the-cuff way, we don't really say what that means. One of the arguments you make in your book is that there's some kind of, I think the term you use is coevolution between what people are able to figure out about planting and what people know about numbers. Maybe you can say a little more about that.
0: Right. So um, if you think about the the results that have been acquired in cognitive psychology and other fields showing how crucial the awareness of numbers is to certain basic cognitive tasks, we see that, as I mentioned earlier, for instance, we can't precisely tell six from seven things consistently if we haven't acquired numbers. Even healthy um, adults that haven't acquired numbers can't really tell that distinction apart. They can't distinguish those things consistently. So if you don't have that kind of capacity, then you're going to face certain challenges that are associated with agriculture, right? So, unlike hunting and gathering, I argue in the book, um, agriculture requires some kind of awareness of quantity distinctions, right? And for us, in um, you know, in cognitive science, the distinction between quantities and numbers are a really critical one, right? So, you need this culturally contingent notion of numbers to enter the world of quantities, and to do so with enough force to be able to. Uh, do things like agriculture. So what I suggest in the book in terms of coevolution is that clearly we had to have numbers to develop agriculture. And when we look at the development of agriculture in places like Mesopotamia, we know for a fact that these people had numbers. That's not really that surprising. But in terms of coevolution, what we see is that as you have agriculture and as you develop certain practices associated with agriculture and, say, urbanization, you then put pressures on people to acquire numbers uh, earlier in life. And to be successful, they have to have an awareness of numbers and numbers spread in trade and they facilitate trade and they facilitate precise trade in a way that even today in um, enumerate uh, societies, we see some difficulties uh, with trade and people being taken advantage of, right? So the, the agriculture and the urbanization and all these sort of cult- social cultural things put pressure on the development and acquisition of numbers across a population. But at the same time, those things like agriculture and urbanization are not possible without the first uh, invention and development of numbers uh, in particular societies.
1: So people are always trying to describe uh, human beings as the only animals who dot, dot, dot. Um, I'm assuming great apes can't do much more than maybe the difference between one, two, or three. I'm sure there's some African gray parrot who's really good at counting. But I mean, how different are we uh, from uh, all the other species of the earth vis-a-vis numbers?
0: Well, you're exactly right about the African gray parrot, that there are some parrots that have been trained with numbers and that actually get pretty good at distinguishing certain quantities, right? But you're also right that uh, great apes have a a, a very similar uh, barrier uh, that we see with humans where once you get to three uh, and past three, things start to get a little bit fuzzy. And this this actual ability to tell one, two, and three precisely and everything else in very fuzzy ways, uh, distinguish other quantities in very approximate ways, that actually seems to be what we call phylogenetically primitive, right? So it exists in lots of different species, and it probably dates back potentially hundreds of millions of years. There's some debate about that. But we see it in a variety of species, not just mammals even. Um, We see it across the animal kingdom, right? So that's maybe one of the coolest things to me about numbers is that if you look at humans and what we bring to the table in terms of our innate predisposition towards quantity recognition, it's not really that unique, right? And it's not that easily distinguishable from what we see in some other primates. It is a bit better. I'm not saying it's the same, but it's not that that unique. It's only after we acquire numbers in childhood um, or in adulthood for some people that we sort of enter this other world where we can precisely tell quantities apart in all these nuanced ways, and we can enter this world of relationships that... um, Um, Brian was talking about.
1: So in some ways, the correct answer to Mr. Lorden, my tenth-grade uh, math teacher, when I was fuming about what, why, why, why in the world I needed to acquire any more information than I already had about quadratic equations—I mean—is one possible answer to that question? Because the entire arc of civilization, from the grasslands of Africa uh, to you know the most high-tech city in the world, Dubai or whatever that is—is is basically the story of acquisition of more numeric information?
0: Yeah, to some extent, I think you could make that case. However, I wouldn't want to sort of imbue value into that, right? So the fact that the Piraha don't have numbers, or the Munduruku don't have numbers, or a number of other populations don't have many numbers, I wouldn't argue that they're less happy. I mean, if you're if you're with them or something. I mean, so it certainly limits the kinds of things that we see around us vis-a-vis civilization, but also they're pretty well adapted to their environment. And they're leading pretty successful lives by their standards.
1: Right. That was my answer to Mr. Lord. All I want to do is be happy and uh, experience truth and beauty. I can do that without those numbers. All right. So our time is limited and we still have this gigantic question for Brian Clegg, which is the title of his book, Are Numbers Real? And first of all, I mean, maybe you could just quickly say, what do you mean by that question?
2: I think it's really just saying, you know, because mathematics has proved so incredibly Useful, um, not just at the basic level of trade and agriculture, but in the development of science and technology. Um, so, you know, anything from the the fact that we we're, we're on the radio, that people are listening to this on a mobile phone, uh, that people are able to get uh, medical technology or whatever, is all totally dependent on the use of numbers. Um, the fact that this system that seems to be almost totally detached from the world apart from those little origins of the relationship between number and physical objects uh, is so incredibly useful has puzzled people i guess for a long time that the you know there have been papers written about just why are numbers so incredibly useful why do they work so well so what i was trying to really bring out is, you know, we just tend to think of number as something every day and uh, sort of all around us. But actually, it is this sort of its own world that somehow manages to support our world and be incredibly useful in our world.
1: Of course, uh, a, a, an ignorant person's counterargument to that – I will now make that counterargument – is, well, then why don't they work better? I mean why – you know, why are some numbers prime and some numbers not prime? Uh, why are there irrational numbers at all? And what do we make of Gödel and his whole chain of undecidable statements about numbers? I mean if numbers are, have this kind of extra human existence, why don't they work better?
2: Um, I guess you, you have to define what you mean by better. You know, you, you might equally say, you know, why aren't people all the same? Why do they have to be all different? Isn't it? You know, wouldn't it be much better if everything was exactly the same? Which is what you seem to be saying about numbers. The fact that they're sort of different and in, what mathematicians would call interesting, so you know, prime numbers, how they interact, all that kind of stuff, um, is actually part of its attraction. I'd suggest mathematicians aren't as enthusiastic about the fact that there are some aspects of mathematical systems that can never be proved, so that this problem with the the stuff that Goodell came up with, Um, but the fact is, you know, even within their limitations, they can do such amazing things that our entire science and technology of today would just not exist without them.
1: So that brings us back to the question. So Galileo said that the universe is a grand book written in the language of mathematics. That's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is mathematics is what we came up with to read the grand book of the universe. Do you put a foot in one camp or the other?
2: Um, I I think in a sense, mathematics exists uh, separately to the universe. And what we've done found a way of bringing the two together so we've almost acted as a translator between the universe and mathematics or parts of it Um, some parts even imaginary numbers for instance the square root of negative numbers which have no possible conceptual reality have proved incredibly useful in practice because we can use them almost as an analogy as a a way of in that case modeling two dimensions Um, we can use numbers even though they are this abstract, separate world in ways that are incredibly tactical. And I think what we've done is, as I say, act as almost a kind of interpreter or, or, or something that's brought the two together.
1: I think that's a a lovely place for us to stop, and also we're out of time. And I know that because I can use numbers to tell you that our show has run out of time. We've been talking to Brian uh, Clegg, the author of Our Numbers Real, The Uncanny Relationship of Mathematics and the Physical World. Caleb Everett is the author of Numbers and the Making of Us, Counting in the Course of Human Cultures. Thanks so much to everybody who helped out today on the show, especially the Radio for the Deaf part where Kaylee McKenna uh, and Mary Sue Owens have been indispensable as interpreters. Tucker Ives is running around doing all kinds of important things and technical things uh, to make this work and Betsy Kaplan is helping him out uh, Jonathan McPants produced the show Kion Wolf's been on the board I'm sure I've just left 16 people out but it does take a lot of people to do a show like this one and really if you know people in the deaf community I hope you will take the time to let them know that I mean this show will stay up on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page uh, interpreted into American Sign Language. So um, guide them over to it and let us know what you think about it, too. We're still learning how to do this, so we want you to help us learn, too. And we will be back tomorrow with a yet, another, yet another show. It never stops. Uh, but thanks for listening to this one.
0: Funny how numbers help me count, help me count.